kidding. Um, all right, so let's, uh, let's jump in here. It's kind of exciting. We are taking a break from Daniel today to jump ahead to Jesus, to looking at Jesus, which um, as Paul, uh, our Paul, noted um, already in the podcast, if you listen to the podcast this week, um, that that's okay because Daniel is already jumping ahead and looking to Jesus. Um, all four Gospels talk about the event that we're going to dive into today, and that automatically kind of puts a highlighter on this event. Um, there's not a lot of things that that's true about, that, the, that all the different writers jump on the same thing and, and the significance of this. This is a defining moment um, for the account of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's, it's defining for us to understand who He is and what He was, um, both in His mind and in the minds of the people who were with Him at the time. Um, so people with certain assumptions, expectations, demands, predictions, they are celebrating Jesus in this account. They're celebrating Jesus being who they want Him to be, and because they expect Him to do what they want Him to do. They aren't bad people. Most of them aren't. They're not necessarily especially wicked people. Um, their desires aren't evil. They just want a good thing to happen in a certain way. They want a good thing to happen in their way. It's even something that's promised to them but they want it to happen their way and in a certain way, and they want it according to their timetables and their priorities and their preferences. Sound familiar? Um, sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? We want things to happen our way, the way we want, according to our timetables. We want God to work in the way that we like, in the way we like best. Um, it's not, that's not strange. In fact, um, I've now referenced a couple of times this passage that, um, again, uh, like the day after he preached that Paul kind of uncovered, I guess, I don't know how you call it when you find Scripture that's been there all along and you've read a thousand times, but now all of a sudden this Scripture carries extra usage to us when we see it and you go, oh, wow, listen to this from 1 Thessalonians, what the Apostle Paul wrote to, uh, to his friends in Thessalonica. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And that's where we are now. Um, that's where we are as a church. It's where your church staff is. It's where the church leadership is. And I am sure it's where most of you are right now. This feeling of having been torn away from each other, Lord willing, for a relatively short time. <coughs> but... As much as we would like to get back together, we just don't have the opportunity, and it's extra hard because really, um, you are why we're doing all this under God. Um, you are our joy, our glory. Um, we are His in so many amazing ways. It's, it's just a, a crazy passage that applies so well. So consider the irony that we're about to read about in, in the Palm Sunday account. Hopefully you've read it. Maybe you even went ahead and watched the uh, video that I had posted out on the Facebook site um, from the Bible Project. Consider the irony. Their king has come, and they're depending on the belief that he's going to lead them exactly the way they want him to. Those of you who have any experience in authority structures, is that ever how that works? Is that ever how that works out? Everyone out there who's ever been in the military, is that how that works out? Is that you go, you know what, you're the one who's in charge, and so here's exactly what we want you to do and the way we want you to do it. Does that work out? Not often. Kids, you feel that with mom and dad, that you go, hey, 
yeah, I get that you're the leader, but here's exactly how I want you to lead. I want you to do it this way and at this time and in this, and that's not going to work out very well. It never does. And that's the, that's the irony of celebrating a king who has come as long as he's going to do things the way you want it to do. That's not much of a king. They're waning the spectacle of Rome being driven out. They're waiting to freedom that will come after Rome is driven out of Israel. Many of the religious leaders, as we're going to see, they're afraid that he may be king. And would therefore, he might take away their power. They're also afraid that he might not be king. And that the Romans will take away their power because of this spectacle. That's how the people are responding. Their leaders are responding. But how is Jesus responding in this moment of this grand moment that we love to celebrate, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry? How is Jesus responding? He is weeping, and he's emotional, and then he's angry. He is heartbroken. It's, it's interesting, and I don't, I don't usually put that in here. It's hard for me to think in terms of Palm Sunday, of the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem as something that Jesus is not really celebrating. He, he is, but he isn't. He is because of what it really is, but he's the only one who knows what it really is. And he's, he's grieving that no one else knows what it really is, I think. And the celebration is quickly going to turn to disappointment and death in a very short time and destruction for these people in just a few years. The people in the end will demand their own way rather than his way. He has come to conquer a different enemy than Rome, an ancient, more disastrous enemy even than Rome. He has come to conquer sin and death and to bridge the gap between God and man once and for all. And in so many ways, this week feels like a bridge. At least it does to me. I don't know if it does to you. The week from Palm Sunday to Easter feels like this interesting kind of weird bridge experience that it's like you climb onto the bridge, you walk onto the bridge. This is this is the moment when you pick up your feet and you hold your breath or you touch the screw in the car or whatever your uh, superstition is about driving over the bridges. But you, this is when you do that. You take the breath, and Easter is when you let that breath out. It feels that way to me. Palm Sunday is when it starts and it runs through the week. And so we wanna, I want to take a minute and give you some great detail about some of the ways we as a church are going to celebrate this this week. Um, and so you're going to see this if you go to the website. Again, there's now uh, a banner, a button right at, the, right at the front there that tells you to go to the things that are based on coronavirus, quarantine, that kind of stuff, and all the different things we're doing differently that are there. And this week in particular, there's a few special ones, okay? You're going to get notifications about these. You're going to get emails. They're all going to, some of them are going to come out today. Um, so one is you're going to get an email, if you haven't already gotten it today, that's about Passion Week family devotionals. Um, so Chris Sherrod has written up some family devotionals, and uh, that'll be great for every family. You can go through to help prepare your heart for this week um, and to prepare this week uh, to be that bridge for you coming into Easter next week. And, um, and of course, most of, you, most of you know by now, we are going to have to celebrate Easter sort of this way, although I'm about to give you some surprises about that as well. Um, so some of which we're still even working on, but, but we've got plans in motion. So the, um, here's some things for you to know. One, the family devotionals, that's out there. Um, so be doing that with your family. Then on Wednesday night, um, uh, because my wife has such courage and faith, we're going to bring probably one of these cameras into our home, and we're going to set it up by our um, table that we eat at, and and we are going to experience Passover there, and I'm going to guide, Lord willing, if this works out, I'm going to be guiding you live through the Passover um, plan, the Seder, the schedule, that night, Wednesday night. So you'll go same place, go to live, 
Um, go to the live options for our church, um, especially the Facebook. I feel confident it'll be at least on the Facebook. So you go there and you follow along and you can do the Passover yourself. Again, you will be getting something, an email about Passover that has all the scriptures. Don't be intimidated by it. It's like eight pages long. Don't be intimidated by that. Just the first two pages you need to look at before Wednesday. The rest are there just to guide through the whole process. Um, so it's going to be really cool. We will get to experience Passover actually the way it's intended to be experienced, and that is in our own homes. Um, the only negative is we can't invite guests in, which normally you would do for Passover, but we can't do that, obviously, um, because of quarantine. But this is a great opportunity for us as family members, for us as moms and dads, um, especially could, to get to spiritually lead our families through this process. It is okay that we're going to be clumsy at it. I will be too as we're going through it this way. That is okay. Uh, we will carefully scoot the pile of laundry off the, out of the camera, and we'll carefully scoot the dirty dishes out of the camera that we're all developing during this quarantine time, and, uh, and our family will be sitting there, and uh, um, it will be uh, an experience. That much I can tell you. So, um, okay, so here we go. That's, that's, so we've got one, we've got, the, we've got the Bible studies, two, we've got the Passover on Wednesday night, um, three, you can also be prepared for that next Sunday, we will be taking communion all together. Um, and so that's not hard. It would be great if you can find a way to get some grape juice or wine or whatever it is for your family and for you to have some, if you can find some unleavened bread or crackers, that's awesome. Um, but remember, the power of us doing this in community, especially over the internet, is going to be the community of it and the picture of Jesus's body and blood. And so and we'll be celebrating that together um, again, we'll be, you will be serving your own family's communion if you've never done that before. <coughs> it is a wonderful experience. So I'm so glad you're going to get the opportunity to do this. Um, uh, so, but that just requires a little bit of preparation. You don't, you don't have to have the little plastic cups. That's not required for Passover. Uh, I mean, for communion, you may not know that. You can do it in normal-sized cups. Um, but you will get, the, especially if you do Passover with us Wednesday night, communion Easter morning will be that much more meaningful for you because it's connected. I'm telling you, it was, I was almost, I tell the guys, like I was almost angry the first time I went through Passover and was like, this was what the communion has always been about. And no one's ever told me this, like all my life. And so I really, can, and this is a good thing. Passover is usually limited to like 300 people because we do it in here. Now, no such limitations. Get the word out to people. Everyone is invited to be there live. Um, anyway, you'll be getting an email with some information about it. You just do your best with the parts um, as you look at it and you teach through it. There's even a, right now I was looking at a, at a Jewish website um, that referenced the fact that if, if you have to use a, a roasted carrot as a replacement for the lamb, then you can do a roasted, I don't, I don't know why that counts. I'm like, why a roasted carrot? over some, I, don't, I don't know, and it doesn't make any difference. The, 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 what's going to matter is the measurement of that we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. So those, those are three big things to be prepared for. There's also going to be, um, the plan is as of right now, um, that next week, you'll be getting in more detail about this, but we think probably at eight o'clock, yes, um, at eight o'clock, if you want to experience a drive-in worship um, experience, you can join us here at this parking lot at 8 a.m. Easter morning, 8 a.m. Easter morning, you drive in, you park your car, and you don't get out of your car. Don't, don't get out of your car. If we, if we get out of the car, then we're not honoring what's been requested of us by city, state, and federal uh, government. So get, get here, stay in your car. You can roll down your windows. 
Um, and then we're, we're figuring out a way for us to all be led in worship together, Bible reading and singing. We'll probably we'll do that for a certain period of time, 30-ish minutes, whatever it happens to be. There's no exact. Then you'll get done. You'll go home. You can stop by a donut shop on the way home if you want to or whatever, and you go home, and then we will have service at 1030 that morning um, on Easter morning, just like this. Okay, so there's a lot there. It's going to be coming out in emails. It's going to be on the website. But these are some exciting opportunities. And again, something you can do that maybe you've never gotten to do before. Forward the email about Passover. And then uh, send people the link. And so you can have, we can, pay, we can be doing Passover with people all over the world um, on Wednesday night. I'm going through that together. So there's no limits on the number of people who are here. Okay. I would ask for questions, but there's like five people in the room. And so um, they can get me afterwards and ask any questions. If you have questions, email them in. And, and ask anything that you need to ask, uh, ask us about. Now, that's a lot. I just took a lot of time uh, to go over all of those details. You still will want to check the website to verify these type of things. But one, I realized, well, if I go in that much detail about these things, I'm probably going to go long this morning. And then I realized, and? I mean, it's not like you got to rush to go get your kids out of children's ministry, right? And so, um, so just turn off your watches and clocks and phones and turn them upside down. You'll never know how long we went. Um, all right, so... Uh, back to the Palm Sunday sermon for 2020. So we start the story of Palm Sunday, in my opinion, again, you can start Palm Sunday at the creation of time, but we're going we're to focus in on the fact that Jesus was in Jericho. <coughs> Jesus is hanging out in Jericho. He, this is where he interacts with Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Uh, this is where he heals some blind people. And then this crowd that he gathers in Jericho follows him all the way, it seems, towards Jerusalem. Now, that makes sense. It's Passover week. It's time for them to head to Jerusalem anyway. So they're going to go with Jesus towards Jerusalem. They follow him, his disciples. This is it. They all get, they all at least assume that this is the kingdom come. This is the kingdom is arrived. <coughs> so here we go. He is coming to take over the kingdom of Israel he is returning as the heir of David. He's going to conquer the Romans. The Messiah has come. If you don't believe me that this is what they assumed was happening, look over in Luke 19. In Luke 19, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So there you go. No more arguing about that. We know, <clears throat> we know that the people assumed Jesus was showing up to set up his kingdom. They were excited about this. This crowd follows him. In fact, here's how imminent this felt to them. In the, that's in the, from the Luke account. In the Matthew account, in Matthew 19, the mother of James and John catches Jesus on the road here somewhere and makes a little request of him. Matthew 20, 21 says, she said to, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So, so James and John's mom um, wants to jump in real quick before they get to Jerusalem. And as Jesus is going to be setting up his council here in Jerusalem, she jumps in and says, hey, I think I have a great idea for you. My sons should be at your right hand and your left hand. Now, there's a lot to this. Um, there's a lot of issues involved in this, and I'm not going to get trapped, on, trapped into talking about this right now. Here's what I want you to see. 
She thought this was about to happen. It was time. The kingdom had come. He was showing up in Jerusalem. It was the fulfillment of all these things. See how imminent this felt? After generation of Roman rule, this was finally it. I can only imagine after generations of slavery that African-American slaves might be able to identify with this thought as freedom was finally coming their way. But even among other earthly counts of enslaved people, and that's happened thousands of times, this one is still special. This one has been foretold, and this one is in the process of being fulfilled. It all comes down to a person. Now, he is heading to Jerusalem, and he arrives, arrives at Bethany, kind of slash this place called Bethphage, which is kind of links Bethany and, and, and Jerusalem, apparently, in some ways. They've taken this 19-mile trip from Jericho-ish. They arrive here six days before Passover. Bethany is a city named, apparently, for dates, um, which comes from, of course, a, a type of palm tree. And so the pieces start coming together for us. It's about a mile, maybe two, from the city of Jerusalem. He and the crowds, it's unclear from the Gospels. It's some, some, it, it's the impression is in some of the Gospels that Jesus spent the night there, this first night, um, it's, it's, he's going to spend the night there every night, it seems, during his Passion Week. But it may be that he and the crowds, they just stopped because they'd run out of time. When they left Jericho, 19 miles. I mean, even if you left early in the morning. I mean, if you're 19 miles away, and you're coming, by the way, to Jerusalem, which may have a million people in it at the beginning of Passover, it's not like you could just walk 19 miles and then you want to walk around Jerusalem trying to find a place to stay. So people would have stayed in outlying regions, um, Jesus knew some people in Bethany. You might remember them. One of them he raised from the dead, Lazarus. And so Jesus knew some people there. So this whole crowd apparently probably spent the night there in Bethany um, waiting for the next day. It sounds like at minimum they stayed there for a special meal. He and the crowds are then um, about to head up. And so in the morning they pick up and they're on their way to the great city. This is the first day of the week, Sunday. This begins the week that we call the Passion um, it's, it's a big deal. We're unclear as to what day everything takes place. We don't always know which day things happen during this, this week, but we know some of them, and we know that this is the first day of the week, the day after the weekly Sabbath. And here he comes. He comes in, and we get this great little story, but I want to I jump backwards again. So let's go back to a little earlier in the story. 500 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah was given a prophecy against the enemies of Israel, particularly those that occupied the same land, um, particularly those along the coast of the, the Mediterranean Sea. And, and this, this prophecy against these nations, Tyre, Sidon, Ekron, Philistia, these were, these were prophecies against these nations, these peoples, essentially that God was going to send in other nations to wipe them out utterly, which incidentally has happened. God was going to crush them with powerful enemies. And, and when these powerful enemies had come in and crushed these historical enemies of Israel, then Israel's new king was going to arrive. Zechariah 9.9 um, 9 prophesies this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there's, there's a lot to say here. Um, some people actually think that this is <clears throat> not repetition, that he is going to ride on a donkey, the colt, and the donkey. 
So that these are two different, these are two different animals. Matthew is going to reference two different animals. It's not clear that he you know, rides on one for a little while and then shifts over to the other or whatever, or if this is meant to be like this is one animal being talked about here. But uh, some people build a lot into that, which I, I don't know that that's a great idea. Um, what matters is what is said here in Zechariah, that this reveals something about this king. It doesn't come in on the back of an elephant. Doesn't come back on an M1, A1, Abrams tank. Um, he doesn't even come in on a horse, uh, much less a Pegasus or a unicorn or something like that. It's a child donkey. So it's a baby donkey that he's going to come riding in on a young donkey. And this is a, um, and by the way, we, we, because of Westerns and stuff like that, we have a really negative attitude about donkeys very often. They did not then. Um, donkeys were considered, often were things that, that wealthy people may have ridden, especially very nice ones. It was a very common form of transportation. Um, but here we have a king coming in, and kings didn't ride donkeys, or certainly not to come in and celebrate. Um, it's a great study if you want to spend some, a fun time sometime looking at the triumphal entries. The triumphal entry does not reference just Jesus. Triumphal entries were something that Roman Caesars and generals did all the time. Kings and, and lords and warlords had done this throughout all of history. You go and conquer, and you defeat your enemy, and then you bring all of your army back with the spoils, and you come back to your home city, and when you do so, this is the triumphal entry. You come in, and you're throwing gifts, and it's a parade, and, and you've got captured people lined up behind you, and, and it's huge. If you imagine the, the Prince Ali scene from Aladdin or something, like it would be a huge... Um, uh, parade event, like a big deal. <clears throat> That's why you have triumph, triumphal arches in Rome and, and France and other places that you have these big arches built to celebrate the triumphal entry of somebody. Not exactly what's happening here. Jesus is coming in on the foal of a donkey. Okay, so now we're, we're back now up to um, the time of Jesus. So we enter the king from stage east um, chapter 21 of Matthew, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Okay, so immediately, this is a fun little story. It has a very supernatural feel to it, though maybe it's intended, maybe it's not. But Jesus sends, they're on the way to Jerusalem from Jericho. They're not all going to take this side trip over. He's gonna, he sends a few to go grab this, just a couple to go grab this donkey, uh, the, the foal, the donkey's foal. And so they go over there, and Jesus says, if someone stops you. Now, we know from the further account that someone did, in fact, stop them and ask them, and they said this. Now, so sometimes what Baptist pastors are um, famous slash infamous for, is jumping too quickly to application, uh, making every little bit of a story about us. That being said, I was intrigued because I had never thought about before until I'm studying this week, who was this guy? Who was the owner of this donkey? Um, in fact, the donkey and the foal. Who was, who was this guy? Um, and we don't know, but here's we've talked about when we talked about the book of John. Just because we don't know who someone is doesn't mean the, the writer, the author, and the readers didn't know who someone was. This is Bethany. They all spent a lot of time in Bethany. They knew their way around Bethany. Who would this guy be? And, and by the way, there is a, I've heard it taught, it was taught to me in Israel, that probably there was a 
donkey foal that until it reached a certain age was always kept in Bethany or Bethphage um, in preparation for when the king showed up. So it was intentionally a donkey that was never ridden from the time it was a baby. Once it's fully grown, they repeat, they replace it with another foal because obviously the Bible says a foal. And so their prophecy said that. So it's very likely that someone's job was to always have a donkey's foal available just in case the king showed up. That's pretty amazing. It would explain why not a whole lot of explanation is needed from Jesus. Jesus sends them there. They go, well, hey, whoa, 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 you can't just take the donkey. That's the special donkey. And they go, well, right, this is the special time. Oh, well, okay, good. And especially if it's like James and John or if it's Peter and John or someone like that, and they get there, well, the the people of Bethany knew them. And so they show up. The guy says, hey, why are you two, Peter, John? I mean, you guys were here just a few weeks ago to raise Lazarus from the dead um, with Jesus. I recognize you. We've eaten together. We know each other. Why are you guys coming and getting the donkey? And when they say, the Lord needs it, Kyrios, the, the Lord, the master needs it, then this person might have gone, oh, it's time. Oh, it's, it's, it's now. It's like the, the, you know, the bottle of wine that someone keeps for a special occasion or, the, or the something like that. that they're, oh, oh, it's time to, time to do that. Like, okay, it's time. Like, this may have been a, a huge, like a ripple effect through Bethany and Bethphage when this word got out. No, no. Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, he sent a couple of his disciples to come get the donkey. To get a donkey? No, no, no. To get the donkey. This, this may have been part of where the crowd came from, too. So you have the crowd coming with him, going with him. Well, here was the... Why was he so fast to relent? I mean, this would have been a pretty expensive gift to give. Um, and by the way, they, as I understand it, they, we find out later that they probably sent it back. But the, um, this person was quick to recognize this. And here's what's wild. Fundamentally, remember, these two animals, they're Jesus' animals, um, as, as they're, they're his animals. That's an interesting thing I had not thought about. They're, they're really his. One, they're his prophetically. Two, they're his by divine right. Um, they're, they're his. He is Lord. He is master. So he calls for these two animals. He's why they exist. Okay, we're sending them to him. But the, very quickly, a lot of the old school kind of preaching commentaries went to this question, which I think we also have to ask. What is the Lord asking of us? What is the Lord asking from us? When the Lord comes in and says, Hey, I need these. The Lord has asked for these. How quick are we to give those up? That seemed like a worthwhile application to take just a moment and ponder. What is He asking of us? Um, We know that He is a God who wants us to love mercy and walk humbly and um, to love justice, like we, we know that's there. We know that we, He wants us to love our neighbors as ourself. We know He wants us to love our brothers and sisters. Um, these, are, these are things He wants us to obey our parents. He wants us to not inspire anger in our children. He wants us to sacrifice for our spouses. Like These are, the things, these are some of the things He's asking from us. Maybe there's even more particular things. Maybe there's something that you know the Lord is asking of you. Isn't it fascinating that he quickly, so here's, here's, here's how it happens, by the way. <clears throat> this took place to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Just, just like we just read. That's the prophecy we just read. The disciples went as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on the cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, 
the other Gospels talk about the fact that someone stepped in and asked, wait, why are you getting that? Matthew skims over that. So, so here's the idea here. We've got, um, I don't know how this is going to work, but so we've, what we've got is this, this uh, map. We've got a little bit of a map. Um, I don't know which one you'll, oh, this pen's kind of, this uh, pointer's kind of dying. But, so you have Bethany and Bethphage over here, and you've got, I don't know if this, they're showing this one or the other one on the screen, but I don't think you can see the green pen anyway. So Bethany and Bethphage, the Garden of Gethsemane is here, and they walk down here, and they come into the temple. Now, I actually disagree with this map. I don't think he came in this gate. Total supposition. No one knows. This was the gate he was supposed to come in. This is the eastern gate, the beautiful gate. Um, that's the gate that he was prophesied to come in to declare himself king. I think it's more likely that he came in a different route. I have a couple of reasons for that. Again, that there's, it's all supposition. My opinion is that the Romans would have stopped an entourage coming in that gate proclaiming someone king and messiah. Um, I think the Romans were prepared for that. They had done it before. They had executed people for that before. Plus, I don't know that Jesus is trying to fulfill the final prophecy that is there about coming in from the east. I think that's going to happen a different time. Um, I think it probably looked more like there are numerous winding gates that come into the city of Jerusalem. And again, it's natural for us to picture a stadium full of people. Maybe there's 100,000 people. No, there may have been 100,000 people or a million people in and around the area of Jerusalem for Passover, but the people who were celebrating Jesus coming in probably wasn't all of them. He had just surprised them. He had just shown up. They, wouldn't, they didn't even know if he was coming. So again, you've got the people who had followed from Jericho, maybe the people from Bethany and Bethphage. Um, so there's, there's this, this little video, this little short snippet of a video that we're going to watch. Um, you can go ahead and start it. Um, uh, I don't know if there's going to be audio where you are on this or not. Um, but here you have, there's a few problems with the video. I mean, all the people's teeth are too white and everybody's too clean and wearing too much, too nice of makeup. But, but aside from that, this is probably a more accurate picture is you have people waving the palm branches. There would have been crowds of people but, but most of them weren't there to see Jesus. They were there for Passover. Uh, several hundred people may have recognized who he was, been excited about the fact that he was showing up. But I, I've always liked this version of it because it doesn't, it's not, people aren't shooting off fireworks. Um, they're not banging pots and pans. Like this, it would have been by our standard, probably more subtle. But in this, as Jesus is doing this, as he's walking through these crowds, as he's moving, again, his cloak's way too white. Uh, those of us who have been over there, we know better than these. It's very artistic and pretty, but there's, some, there's things there. But I think I like the feel of this one. The feel of Jesus riding in. He's riding through a winding gate, and the people are celebrating him. It says in verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, this is a clear reference to him coming to be king. This is the son of David. This is someone who is coming to, pro, to, to claim his right as the heir of David, as someone in the lineage of David. So he's coming. they think he's coming to declare himself king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's not about other people. They think Jesus is coming in the name of the Lord. The majority of the crowd would not have understood him to be Lord. Some would have, but most of them we're going to see in a minute, they think he has a different role. 
They think he has a different role here. And either he is the king or he has another role, but this, this is how this is going to play out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're, they're praising God. It's a beautiful celebration. <clears throat> it's an amazing celebration. Um, and Jesus is, is wandering, is coming through them, riding on the back of this donkey's foal. Um, Luke 19 shows us that something else is happening in the midst of this. As he's coming up, Luke 19 verse 38 says, I'm saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, they think he's king coming in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so as the crowd is doing this, some of the Pharisees who don't get along well with Jesus by this point at all, they, come, they stop Jesus in the midst of all of this. I mean, their timing is terrible. I mean, these are, these are the ultimate and party poopers. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, I'm not clear what they're upset about. I'm not clear if they're just they're upset about what, they're, what they think is heresy, which is certainly what they're implying, is that you should rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be calling, out, calling you the son of David. They shouldn't be calling you the king. Rebuke your disciples, they say. So, I, and maybe, maybe they thought he was king and, and they, didn't, they were afraid, and so they're trying to get to quiet everything down because they know the Romans are listening and at any moment soldiers are going to show up and they don't want that to happen. So they're trying to make everybody be quiet. Maybe it's that. Maybe he's saying, Rabbi or teacher or whatever, rebuke your disciples as in keep them quiet. Don't let anybody know what's going on here. But their, their implication here, I think, is that they're trying to imply that there's something wrong with what they're saying. Not only is there nothing wrong with what they're saying, it is true beyond anything anyone in the crowd can imagine, even probably his 12, maybe even including his mother. And so instead, what you've got is Jesus saying, no, no, let me, let me explain this to you. The cosmic truth of what you're experiencing here, which you think is about, oh, these people are declaring me king, and I'm either going to come in and kick out the Romans and be made king, they don't think that, or probably they don't think that, or he's going to come in and stir up trouble, and then a bunch of Jewish people are going to be killed in the Roman uh, um, kind of knocking them back into their place. Jesus tells them, if you had any idea what was going on here, I could not make this be a quiet moment. It would not be possible to make this a quiet moment. If they weren't, if these people weren't, these stones would cry out. Now, I think growing up, I always pictured like a cobblestone road or maybe rocks on the side of the big rocks going down the side of a path. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying, if, if these people weren't celebrating me, then, then all these rocks down here. You go into Jerusalem and you suddenly realize everything is stone. I mean, you, you could, when you watch that video a second ago, Jesus is coming in, the walls are stone. The floor, the ground, the road is stone. Everything is stone. And the implication I think Jesus is making here is, is if these people weren't crying out, everything here would be. The only thing that's keeping these stones from crying out is the fact that these people are crying out. And so I, I think this is a, he's saying this is a powerful moment in creation. The king has come. Nature itself would not be able to control itself to allow silence in this moment of celebration. That's what's going on here. It is that significant a moment. The people think the king has come to overcome Rome. But the stones, creation knows that the king has come to make things right between creation and God. 
And they would have to cry out. The king has come. Verse 41 of Luke 19, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on, in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. So Jesus coming into the city is confronted by the Pharisees as, they're, as the people are chanting. He, he kind of shuts them down. But then Luke, apparently speaking to somebody about this, because it's unlikely Luke was here, that Luke remembers this detail from somebody that in this Jesus is weeping. Jesus is coming into the city as the stones themselves would be crying out. And what Jesus is doing is weeping. He loves this city. We talked about in the book of Daniel how in many ways the story of Scripture is the tale of two cities. Um, it's been said for a long time. Babylon, the kingdom of the world, and Jerusalem, the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus knows the significance of this and the importance. This is his city, and he loves this city. And Jesus is already aware of the fact that in just a very few years, about 40 years or less from this moment, this city is going to be utterly devastated. It's happened before, it's going to happen then, it's going to happen again and again and again and again. When, you're, when you represent the enemy, you even just represent the kingdom of God, the world is always going to be seeking to tear you down, much less the fact that God, when they're in rebellion against Him, sends enemies to come and tear the city down. Um, this is a... Jesus is weeping because He is predicting um, quite literally that stone upon stone will be torn down. And that's exactly what happened. Now this little phrase at the end, because you, do not, you did not know the time of your visitation. I found two different kind of understandings of this phrase. One is Jesus talking about the visitation of their enemies that's going to come at some point in the future. That at some point in the future, enemies are going to show up. And it's kind of like when Matthew, I mean, in, in Matthew um, tw 21 and Luke, no, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, um, when Jesus gives the, um, the prediction of what's going to happen to the holy city. And he, and he talks about the fact that, you know, it's going to happen suddenly and they're not going to be able to get away and that they should pray that it doesn't happen during uh, bad, bad weather or on the Sabbath and that women who have little children or who are um, nursing or pregnant will have a hard time. <coughs> so that when you start seeing armies gather, you should know it's time to get out. And, and maybe this is what the point Jesus is making here is you, you didn't realize when God was going to visit this wrath upon you. And maybe that's what he means. For today's purposes, it's much more fun for us to examine the other interpretation here that's kind of cool. Because see, there's a prophecy there's a prophecy which gives a measurement of days. The measurement of days from the time of the exile of, of, the, of the Israelite people, which we talked about in Daniel chapter 1. There's a prophecy that gives a measurement from the time of the exile through the reconstruction and return of the people to Israel to the completion of the wall and the temple. And from that time, through a series of being conquered, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and finally, I think, Rome. And this prophecy is found in, you guessed it, Daniel. 
In the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about this theory when we get here, that the number of days described in this prophecy, 600 years before the birth of Christ, begun from the correct day of the rebuilding of the wall and the city of Jerusalem itself, which Jesus is walking into now, that from the rebuilding of this city, after the exile into Babylon, after the destruction of Babylon and the Persians, that the rebuilding of this wall until the day that the Son of Man, the divine king that we read about in Daniel, the day he returns, some say was predicted to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. To the day. That if you count from the correct day from the rebuilding of the wall and the temple, and you count the number of days that Daniel prophesied, that it would be between that day and the day the Son of Man, the divine king, rode into Jerusalem, if you count those days, you end up with this day in history. There's debate about that, obviously. But there's good case, there's very good case to be made for it. Again, we will dive more into that, which is wild. And Jesus may literally, we talked about this on the podcast, this is one of those like hair on the back of your neck moments, stand up, that Jesus may be telling them, if you guys had been paying attention, you should have had this day on your calendar circled and it said, Son of Man comes to Jerusalem this day. And you should have been standing outside waiting for the Son of Man. And it might have been a big hint to you when a bunch of people formed a a corridor and a parade and started shouting to the Son of David, to the King of Israel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. You might have thought, hey, that's today. But the religious leaders, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, missed it. Fascinating. That's a pretty cool thing. Verse 10, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Obviously the people, as excited as they were, many of them didn't understand, right? Because you would have had this handful of people following, maybe a few dozen, maybe a few hundred, I don't know. I I think a few dozen is more reasonable. Following Jesus, making this little parade. But there's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem probably already. And some of them, even though this had happened three years in a row to a certain degree, Jesus had been there a few years in a row at Passover and had been a big deal, they're going, <coughs> what's all the ruckus? So again, clearly, if you're picturing the whole city doing this, don't. It's, it's smaller than that. Who is this? But even some of the people following him apparently did not know who they were dealing with because the crowds answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They knew he was a prophet. They hoped he was a king. They believed he was a king. The good prophet king understanding. That's who we're talking about. But notice, he wasn't just a prophet. And he isn't merely an earthly king. There was much, much more to that. The triumphal entry is about Jesus coming the final few days in preparation for the fact that the king has come to conquer an enemy and not just a national foe. He's come to conquer sin and death forever. He's come to purchase my identity and yours for the Father. That's why He's come. He has come to fulfill the entire concept of the Passover lamb. So in the day of judgment, when God looks on us 
to send this angel of death for eternity into our lives, and he sees the blood of the Lamb on us, and that, that judgment passes over us. We're no longer children of wrath. That's the picture being created here. It's, it's pretty shocking. Um, I'm going to take a second. My, uh, it's okay. I'm going to walk off screen just for a second and grab something. So I'm going to give you this picture because a few years ago when I understood this story, I've talked about this before on other nights, and I wasn't sure if I was going to do this this morning, but I am. Very quickly, I have four symbols. This is, this is the application, another application for us. My, these are consider, I consider these my ministry symbols. Um, the first is the candle from the prophecy in Matthew 12, um, a prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah connecting to this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he brings justice to victory. So for me, learning how to be gentle, so gentle that a bruised reed I wouldn't break and a smoldering wick I would not snuff. Um, the second one is the blade for the Word of God from Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. These represent the fundamental of my calling to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. In the midst of that, I did not have this until I came on church staff. This one, um, this is the cup, and it represents the communion cup. It represents that it's my job um, to, to introduce people in this way to what the Lord has given me. And I look to the, the line in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That's what the cup represents. And the last one is the donkey. Now, for those of you who are old enough to read the King James, you know what word goes in there for donkey. Um, uh, I'm not going to go there for confusion for kids, but this is, this is the idea of a donkey. This is, comes from this picture. Um, in Matthew 21, 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on him, and he sat on them. Um, this idea is that when we minister, our job is to take Jesus, is to, is to deliver, to transport Jesus to the people. Um, it would be very natural, I heard a preacher say years ago, for the donkey to think, as the people are putting out blankets and waving palm leaves and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, for the donkey to think, man, these people really like me. Um, we, don't, we don't want to make that mistake. It's, it is great that we get to be involved in that. It is great that we get to be here today talking about God's Word and sharing about God's Word and joining together in heart, if not face-to-face. Um, but the reminder that everything we're doing, no matter what's going on there, the reminder that this is fundamentally about the fact that our job is transporting Jesus, is living out who Jesus is in other people's life. Incidentally, um, <coughs> as we wrap up this thought, it is, it is interesting to note the book of Revelation in chapter 19 is very clear about the fact that when Jesus comes back, he's not riding a colt. He's not riding a donkey. He's going to be on a war horse that time. Again, the same expression, but now a king coming in the fullness of his power and his glory. And so this is the fullness of who he is, but we get the sneak peek here on Palm Sunday at this triumphal entry. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we'll take a time of invitation. Obviously, you there at home respond. Um, you can sing along with John as he's going to be leading us. You can pray with your family. Um, 
whatever it is. Don't, don't turn off and walk away. Um, I, don't, I don't want you to turn off this time. Don't, don't let the invitation time. I know every week there's a handful of people who get up and leave. One, we've got new members to introduce to you this morning. Um, you don't want to miss that. But also, um, assume there's something for the Spirit to lead you in, either quietly or singing or as a family praying. Um, and then, so we'll, we'll have this time of invitation. We'll introduce our new members. Paul will close us out with a benediction. But even when Paul closes us out, um, don't stop. One of my very favorite um, footage, uh, sermon footages of all time by S.M. Lockridge called um, That's My King is going to run even after that. Now, if you're on Facebook, there's a chance. We don't know for sure. Facebook may cut the audio, in which case you may have to run over to YouTube and look up S.M. Lockridge, That's My King, and that's fine um, for as a family to watch. Um, it's a really beautiful uh, expression of worship in word, I think, um, that Reverend Lockridge does. So for our hearts, that's the question. What's going to happen is that these people are going to abandon their king because he's not the kind of king they want. Are we able to stand by and serve and live under the authority of our king because he is our king, even if he doesn't follow our rules, even doesn't follow our guidelines? What is it that he's asking of us? Seems like a good question. Um, so be engaging with that, listening to the Spirit, praying and singing um, now during this time. John?